that's okay. I've had a lot of success in my life. I've had some failure. And typically my success has come because A, someone believed in me and lifted me up, provided me an opportunity, and B, I didn't listen to the naysayers and to the haters, which I've got plenty. Podcast Junkies, episode 230, 230. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. New folks, new listeners to the show, welcome, welcome, welcome. Conversations with amazing podcasters from around the podosphere is what happens here each and every week. Also, folks doing interesting things in the podcasting space. Last week was just such an episode with Dave Zarub of Chartable. It's the premier analytics company helping sponsors and podcasters get a better hold of how their podcast is performing. And we really geeked out on podcast tech with Dave, and he was a good sport, and it's been getting a lot of favorable feedback. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite, and specifically the Scarlet 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right, and the link will be in the show notes as well. This week, we have the pleasure of speaking with Scott Miller. Scott is the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership at Franklin Covey. Anyone who's been in the productivity space knows the name Franklin Covey very, very well. I'm dating myself. I used to have an actual Franklin Covey planner, leather-bound with pages for each day of the week, tracking what I needed to do and what my appointments were. (laughs) I remember carrying that around with me all the time. It was something I was really proud of and enjoyed a lot, my early days of task management. So it was fun to have this conversation with Scott. He's also a Wall Street Journal bestselling author and an Inc.com contributor. And relevant to this show, he's the host of On Leadership. It's a weekly podcast from Franklin Covey that provides helpful tips and advice on how to become a better leader. And in this episode, we discussed the genesis of the podcast and how Scott himself has grown as a host and interviewer. He has a passion for leadership that clearly shines throughout the interview. And he talks about the role of thought leadership and the fundamental leadership competencies of self-awareness, listening, and compassion. As a student of podcast interviews, Scott has a lot of tips One of the things he talks about was how he ensures conversations stay on track, which is something that is relevant for all podcast hosts to pay attention to. We cover his journey to Franklin Covey and how he's ended up spending so much of his career there and why he's proud of his tenure there. So much to take away from this episode, so make sure, again, you've got your notebook handy for all the tips and resources we've mentioned. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite. Their third generation line is now available as if 2G wasn't enough, this latest iteration gets even better. It now boasts two of the best-performing mic preamps the Scarlet range has ever seen, and there's an air button, which will give your mic a brighter and more open sound. They've added a quick start tool to help get you up and running super quick, and bundled a bunch of great software as well. For more details and to see their complete line, head on over to podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite. This episode is also brought to you by Fullcast. If you're curious about how podcasts can be leveraged to grow your business or your brand, book a free call at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. Make sure you stay to the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. But for now, let's enjoy this conversation with Scott. So Scott Miller, host of On Leadership. Thank you for joining us on Podcast Junkies. Here is my pleasure. Thank you for the platform today. So there's so many different ways, uh, and that's the beauty of the podcasting ecosystem, and having a show where I can scratch my own itch and and talk to other podcasters who are doing some interesting things. And we cross paths on on LinkedIn, I believe is when we first had our first chat. And so I I love origin stories and and when we first got to chatting. So do you remember that first chat that we had on LinkedIn, uh, (laughs) how we got to talking about the podcast? Are you testing me or are you <laughs> I, I don't like you my LinkedIn connections are are robust and and plentiful and so I have a lot of contacts like you so I don't recall the exact first conversation Are you active on LinkedIn normally Very active yeah I'm very active yeah and increasingly have a larger a large following and a lot of requests coming in for me to coach and so yeah. I'm not as clear on them all as I used to be 
So having you turn back the clock a bit, can you recall when podcasts started coming onto your radar? Probably within the last three or four years. I was a little bit late to the game. You know, I work for a large public leadership development firm. And most of our outreach, most of our thought leadership has been through books, through articles, websites, keynote speeches. And as we became a little bit more recognizing that our future buyer, our future um, engagement is going to be from a junior generation, we realized we've got to change the medium with which we connect and reach our future buyers, our future decision makers. So we started our podcast two years ago, late to the game, but have made up a lot of ground since then. I'll talk, talk more about that, but I think probably within the last three or four years. You know, it's interesting, probably should clarify for the listener that it's Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast. That's right. We call it Franklin Covey On Leadership with Scott Miller. So I'm privileged yeah. to serve as the host, and it now has become the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership, both with, through subscriptions and distributions. So we've had a pretty steep trajectory. Well, the beauty of this show is that we're actually going to geek out on all things podcasting. So I'll, I'll ask you about the, the Genesis story of that. I don't know how often you get to talk about the actual podcast itself. Never, never. <laughs> right. This is a first. So, yeah. So I'm going to rewind the clock a bit for myself because when I saw the name Franklin Covey, immediately kicked in a lot of nostalgia for me. So my background is I grew up in corporate world. I, I worked at JP Morgan Chase and uh, E-Trade. And so been over almost 20 years in corporate America. And it's so interesting because I started in the branches. My first job was with Manufacturers Hanover. So wow. <laughs> that's wow. dating myself. And then we yes, were going... Yes, it is. <laughs> we were in New York City at 50, 53rd, 51st and 3rd Avenue. And it was a couple of weeks before the, the merger with Chemical Bank. Yes, and my so gosh, chemical. these are these are old names, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So definitely dating myself with that. And I started out literally as a teller in the branches, and then I started. I was moved onto the sales floor. My, my, I just kept getting promoted. My boss was really happy with me. So my, I have a lot of nostalgia and good memories of, of J.P. Morgan Chase. And I remember we we took some sort of training class, and one of the first things I've, I was so excited to buy was my first Franklin Covey planner. Yes, and yes. So I had, and for the longest time, I, I, I kept it for a while, but I had, it was a two-tone leather, tan and black, like Franklin Covey. You're and killing I was, me. You're <laughs> killing me. <laughs> You're undoing all the work I've done in the last 10 years to move away from our legacy brand, which we're proud of, but it's not helping a lot with the new generation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, honestly, to your point, you're one of millions that blog about this and thousands that I meet. That, that was our history, right? We were a planning company and a time management firm and also a leadership development firm. And for you know 30 years of our 40-year history, we dominated the world when it came to not just the methodology, but the tool application of planning. Yeah. And, and still, that although we have divested ourselves from that firm, the Franklin Planner company still sells millions of planners a year because people still use paper. I mean, you, might, you may use a yellow pad, but you know, paper hasn't gone away by any stretch. There's some kinesthetic, or I don't know if the, the, what the proper word yeah. is about the, the connection yeah. that you get when there's pen to paper that a lot of people still still miss, I'm sure. I still use a paper device. You know, Michael Hyatt is a fairly famous podcaster, and I use his full focus oh, yeah. planner. I love it. I, that's what I use every day, mainly for tasks and note capture, right? All my appointments and such are digital, but I think everybody, if they're introspective, is using paper in some way to capture notes and ideas and their creativity. So yeah, just speaking to that nostalgia, I think it was the first system that I found that allowed me to coordinate because my brain is super busy. I, I just recently took a course called Building a Second Brain because <laughs> there's I, I'm just fascinated by so much information, so many things that I'm always looking for ways to collect it. And it was it's run by someone named Tiago Forte who who helped me under gave me a good system for organizing things, and that's another rabbit hole. But I think what's what's exciting to see is the movement that Franklin Covey is making into the world, the digital world and into podcasts and understanding how it is a really personal medium. And I'm sure you'll, you'll talk a little bit about how it's been for you. But what I found is this ability to have this hour long conversation face to face is just an incredible networking opportunity to connect with another human being on a personal level and build relationships. And so I'm wondering as, as you got started, the origins about the on leadership podcast, if you could start taking us through what that looked like. 
Sure. You know, our podcast is a little different than most because we're a combination. We're a video webcast that's also a podcast that's also a newsletter. So let me tell you kind of kind of how that came about. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Franklin Covey, we're a public company based in Salt Lake City, offices around the world. We are by most measures the largest and probably, I think, most valuable leadership development firm. So we have a lot of clients. We have a lot of intellectual property. And we actually work with a lot of partners and license their content in our courses, if you will. So about three years ago, we made the transition, Harry, from being kind of mainly a live stand-up training company to becoming a SaaS company, right? So we took all of our content, put it into what we call the all-access pass, and it allows companies to then train and implement our content as they see fit across all their markets. It could be live training. It could be all digital. It could be blended learning. It could be asynchronous. You, you, you name it. We're not a digital company per se, but we're certainly a technology company now. And so we realized that as chief learning officers, chief human resource officers, people who typically are responsible for development of their people, as their age skews lower, they're less likely in many cases to be buying a hardcover book in an airport bookstore, right? They're not necessarily going to Barnes and Noble. They may not be reading Fortune magazine or having the Wall Street Journal delivered to their house on Saturdays, right? I'm 52 almost. That's typically how I tend to still consume my information. But as the age of that demographic, our buyer, skews lower, we, of course, had to adapt. So we developed this weekly series called On Leadership with Scott Miller. And it basically, I have a studio that's at the headquarters in Salt Lake City. I go in each week, and we interview a different thought leader 50 to 52 times a week. We reserve about 26 of those interviews for our own internal experts, our own internal best-selling authors, and the other 26 are, quote, kind of friends of the firm. We go out and we find people who are significant CEOs, best-selling authors, business titans, or perhaps not. You know, two weeks ago, I interviewed Elizabeth Smart. She's not a, C she's not a CEO or a business titan, but she's an influential person when it comes to forgiveness, and compassion, and moving forward, which is part of the competency of being a leader. So we tape this podcast every week, but basically the person's on Zoom. They come to us either physically in the station or in the, in the studio, or they come typically on Zoom. And what's interesting is we have about 50% consumption audio on podcast platforms and 50% people watch it video on their phone, on their laptop, on their tablet. And so it's both a video and audio engagement. And then it also gets emailed out into a newsletter where you can download a tool and I write a blog about it each week. So although it is a podcast for many people, it's also, you might argue, a video webcast for half of our audience. I think it works really well. A lot of people like to see the body language, the inflection, like to see what someone looks like in person, right? Or they maybe met them once far on a stage. So it's been a good medium for us. Of course, it changes a lot of the production because I'm on camera. And so is the guest. So, you know, you spend a lot of your time subconsciously making sure that you're looking at the right cameras and that you're reading the guest body language, right, and all of that. When you have a podcast, you can focus all of your energy into the auditory consumption versus, you know, have you had a haircut? Is your makeup on? <laughs> Which camera is on me? How is the lighting, right? So it does probably diminish our capacity in podcast format, but it, for those who want to consume it both audibly and visually, it makes for, I think, a better experience. So can you talk about early days? Have you been with Franklin Covey for... 25 years. I'm coming in my 25th year. Yeah. Early days of the podcast? Yes. Yeah, it was a wreck. I mean, we had no <laughs> idea what we were doing, right? And we got this idea to have a podcast. Yeah. We decided to do it in video. So we thought, well, who should we have? So we, we, we called up Susan Cain who's a very famous author of the book, Quiet. And I think the subtitle is How Introverts Can Thrive in a World That Values Extroverts, or something like that. She's a very famous yeah. author, and I knew yeah. her from some collaborations. So she was delighted and gracious to come on the podcast. And this was my first ever like on-air interview. I did lots of keynotes and speeches, but I was an expert interviewer. And it was fine. It was, I was a bit impulsive and impetuous. And I talked too much and all of that. And so the very beginning four or five interviews, man, did I get the feedback 
I mean, the vitriol would come in from all of our salespeople around the world. And, you know, I'm sure there was a lot more than I heard. I was drowning in feedback. And I had to very quickly decide whose feedback did I value, right? Was it more about their disliking me as a person and not just a host? Was it because they didn't like the guest as well? So I, I as a early on, got very clear on whose feedback would I listen to. Yeah and not try to listen to 80 people or 800. I mean, it was coming in in waves. We had some interesting guests that never showed up. <laughs> we had, a, I'll tell you, I think one of our like fifth interview was with a famous actor, producer, director. You would know the name right now. Yeah, yeah. And they actually reached out to us. Her team reached out to us and said, I think so-and-so would love to be on your podcast. So for several weeks, we negotiated this person's arrival. We taped it at 2 o'clock on a Saturday. So the whole production team came into the office. It was wow. a big celebrity. And this person was simultaneously launching a leadership initiative. And then we get a call from her closer team saying, now what is this podcast about? And have you signed permissions? And we're getting nervous. Yeah, yeah. We talked to their team 10 times. She doesn't show. She says no. I saw I gave away to she. At the last minute, she said no. And we were a little bit irritated, yeah. but I grew up really quick and I realized, you know, you don't just get guests on that haven't been vetted by their publicist or their agent. Yes, exactly. They usually sign a release. They usually are very clear on what is the guest's motive. You know, you don't, no, no one wants a Borat moment, right? You know, where you, you ambush someone or <laughs> yeah, you exactly. catfish someone, whatever Got, it's called. Gotcha, yeah. Gotcha questions. And of course, we were completely legit. But with one minute to go, the person backed out. And when I say they backed out, they didn't even know about it. They just said no. Wow. And wow. so I learned a lot about making sure we kind of crossed our T's and dotted our I's. And so I learned a lot about not being naive and thinking that somebody on the outer circle has the power to commit someone closer into the inner circle. It's a good advice, I think. Can you talk a little bit about how, through what you learned in those early episodes, you started to plan for the guests that you're going to have and talk maybe about any prep that you do for your guests, any research? Yeah, I, I do a lot of preparation. So I make a, a concerted attempt to read their latest book cover to cover. Okay. Just so happens, of our 110 guests, 105 wrote a book. We don't only interview authors, but you know, most big name celebrities, thought leaders have written a book or written 10 books, right? So I typically have, and by the way, they, we, we search them out and they come to us. Increasingly, of course, we're booked, you know, four or five months. Out. I think I have 22 podcasts in the can. So we're booked five months out right now. And as our podcast grows with, you know, over 6 million distribution now, you can imagine the number of agents that are calling us, right? We get yeah, yeah. probably four or five inbound inquiries a day. And then I'll go to Barnes & Noble back in the olden days, or I'll look at the Wall Street Journal list and I'll pick someone that I'm fascinated with and I'll call them. Um, so what I usually do is I read their book cover to cover. I don't listen to an audio. I read it and I take notes usually within about a week or so within the podcast, which means I'm reading two or three books simultaneously at any given time. And I curate about eight to 10 questions and I'm really thoughtful about how that's going to serve leaders in, in leadership capacity. I do my best to ask some follow-up questions because you never know where their answer is going to go. Yeah. I try not to make my questions be the same as every other podcast. So I'll usually listen to two or three other podcast interviews or TED Talks and not just make it a book review or the same questions. Right? I usually try to bring yeah. two or three questions, not just because I want to be different, but I want the experience to be different. I, I want the person to say, I've never been asked that question before. Or, wow, you really read my book. So I'm really intent on making sure that I bring some of the stories that I've, they've written into the book. And not just the stories from the first two or three chapters. Stories that are from the 8th, ninth, and 13th chapter. That most people of, don't usually get they don't, they don't get there. Right. They don't ever get there. And that's where some of the good stuff is, right? So I do a lot of preparation. Let me tell you why I do that. I read a book from Brian Grazier who, of course, is you know of the famous Imagine Entertainment Hollywood producer, director. He Partners wrote a book, with uh, Ron Howard. Ron Howard, Howard. that's right. Yep. He's on the podcast as well. And he wrote a book called A Curious Mind. And I think this is the best advice I will give your listeners in this entire interview. 
he shared an example of when he was researching an idea for a new movie they were going to consider producing. And he wanted to interview the famous, I think, physicist or scientist, Isaac Asimov, who's, of course, passed now. Yeah. And so he'd read a bunch of his stuff, and he has these listening lunches where he goes and he asks all these questions. Not for people who might be in the movie, just to get context and texture and background and research. So he finally convinces the famed scientist, Isaac Asimov, I think he passed a decade ago, who'd written, you know, gosh, a hundred books, it seems like. He sits down at a fancy hotel in New York City with Isaac Asimov, you know, in his 80s then, and his then current wife. I think he'd had several wives. <laughs> and this wife was, I think, a little bit younger and maybe a little more savvy or certainly more brash. And here is the famed Hollywood mogul producer director, Brian Grazier, sitting at like, you know, a cup of coffee with Isaac Asimov and his wife. And something like 10 minutes into the conversation, Isaac Asimov's wife stands up and says, it is clear by the nature of your questions, you do not understand the gravity and level of my husband's work. This interview is over. Wow. And she and her husband got up and walked out on Brian Grazier. Wow. And at first blush, he was a little bit, you know, kind of taken aback and just the rudeness of it and the shock. And then he quickly came to say in the book, she was right. I hadn't. I was kind of phoning it in. Now, of course, I'm you know phoning it in and Brian Grazier phoning it in are two different things. But <laughs> exactly. when I read that passage in his book 10 years, I don't know, five years ago, it really instructed my preparation to make sure that when I get someone in the podcast, Carly Fiorina, Doris Kearns Goodwin, General McChrystal, whoever it is, right? I make sure that I have researched them, listened to them, followed their career, and try to bring out their wisdom as much as possible. And then they will refer you on to somebody else. If you want to go land a big fish and they know them, they'll say, that guy's legit. That was worth my time. Totally. I give my endorsement. How have you improved as a listener as a result of having these conversations? You know, I had to find my niche because early on I had a lot of criticism that I was talking too much, that I was trying to make the podcast more about me and, and I had to wrestle with that because, you know, people come to a podcast as much for the host as they do the guest. I don't know about you, but, you know, back in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, I watched Larry King live every night on CNN. I didn't know if his guest was going to be the Queen of Jordan or like, you know, his son, but he was such a powerful interviewer. So I really had to try to balance what value do I bring to the podcast and not usurp it from the guest how much do I listen? How much do I talk? It has definitely made me an improved listener, which is a challenge for me anyway, because by nature, I'm a speaker, I'm a communicator. I'm usually in sales mode, influence mode. I could talk about listening for a long time. I think listening is fairly selfless. Yes. And talking is fairly selfish. So I think if you were to compare my first 10 podcast interviews with the last 10 you'd see a subtle change, not a dramatic change, because I do think people come to the podcast also to hear what's gonna, what Scott's going to ask next. And hopefully, does Scott share some insights as well? What's interesting is about every 10th or so podcast, Harry, I don't have a guest. I just talk direct to the camera, and okay. I share extemporaneously 15 minutes of one of my own leadership thoughts. And can I tell you, as arrogant as this sound, those get more downloads and more listens to longer than if I'm interviewing some major celebrity. And so that get, makes me a little cocky because I think, well, really, they're coming for me. They're not coming for me, right? I mean, you have Rachel Hollis on and that listens shoot through the roof, right? So it's taught me a lot about what my role should be and what it shouldn't be. Can you talk a little bit about the planning process? Because I'm, I'm curious about the, the hallway conversations as the organization was thinking about putting a podcast together and if this is a, a position that you nominated yourself for or if your boss decided you were, you're, you were going to be the good fit. Because having worked in corporate America myself, I, I know what some of those conversations look like. So I'm wondering if you could give us a sneak peek into what, what that was like. Such a naughty question. <laughs> so I mentioned I've been in the firm 25 years. I served as the chief marketing officer for the last eight of those. In that function, I was also an executive vice president. So I'm an officer in the firm. And about two years, just over two years ago, 
two years ago, I moved out of the chief marketing officer role and became the executive vice president of thought leadership. It was time to me to move on and bring up fresh new talent to be leading marketing. And so as I took over thought leadership, and let me give a primer on that because we hear this term a lot. Thought leadership is the new public relations, period. It is the mouthpiece of the firm, right? It's gone are the days where you have PR departments issuing press releases or calling up reporters. There are no reporters. There's no newsrooms anymore, right? It's gone. So thought leadership, as we view it, is publishing books, writing articles in Forbes.com, Inc.com, speaking at conferences, having a blog, having a podcast. So the CEO really wanted to develop this idea of a leadership channel. And when I heard that, I report to the CEO. I said, so Bob, when you say leadership channel, do you mean like a, like a business channel, like, you know, B2C or B2, like a business channel? Or do you mean like a channel like as in ABC, NBC? Or do you mean channel like Sirius Radio or iHeart or NPR? Or do you mean channel, like, what do you mean channel? Like 24 hours a day, you know, LNN, Leadership News Network? I mean, you know, like, what do you mean? He didn't really know either, right? So we decided we would, I decided, I decided that we would host this interview program. I don't think I really even used the word podcast. I said, you know what? Let's have an interview program and we'll start emailing it out to our clients and we'll have a subscription opt-in. It'll be video and audio. And then it turned into this massive podcast for some people, but I kind of nominated myself, A, A, because I was, you know, I'm I'm not the only face of the company by any means. I'm one of, you know, 10 faces of the firm, but I've published several best-selling books. I've been in the firm a long time. I'm a spokesperson for the company. You know, I've got a moderately decent grasp on the human language. I'm pretty good in a hot spot moment. I often have served as a lot of our moderators and MCs for conferences and town halls. And so it was kind of natural fit. I'm by far not the most well-spoken or the most intellectual or the most articulate. And I probably have a face for a video, but you know, a little bit of makeup here and there and some, you know, hair gel and I'm acceptable. But I kind of, I just did it. I just didn't, I mean, I didn't ask for permission. And I, again, I was at enough level where I could take it on, but I think I didn't screw it up. So I didn't jeopardize my chances. Now the politics are early on, there were some people who I think were not my fan inside the company. They're still not, to tell you the truth. <laughs> and I think they thought, well, maybe we should have roving guests. Maybe we should have like, you know, um, guests different weeks. Maybe Scott should have a sidekick and a side hustle. And now, an, again, Ed, an Ed McMahon. Exactly. <laughs> and the more that I listened to them and I discerned what their motives were. And I, and by the way, I did not need to be the only host of the podcast. We've had some other podcasts that people have host. I started to host a radio program simultaneously to the podcast for the company. So we landed a radio program on iHeartRadio called Great Life, Great Career with Scott Miller. And I got a little bit adept at interviewing and such. So I kind of took it on by myself. I resisted the temptations of others to, or overtures to have a host. And I think that was wise because you don't want hosts coming and going and the vibe being yes. different. And then someone is gone. They're talking over each other or they're trying to air, you know, vie for airtime. So I think it's to the benefit of our brand, our guest, and our listener viewer to have one consistent host. I don't recall a lot of guest hosts on Oprah. <laughs> no. And I'm a far cry from Miss Winfrey, but I think there's va- value in a flywheel. You mentioned something I thought was interesting. You were trying to figure out what their motives were when there were people that were maybe not a fans. Can you talk a little bit about the thought process? Because it, it, I think it's helpful to educate podcasters and as podcast hosts that listen to the show as well having these types of conversations and understanding how to manage those is something that's helpful. Yeah. I think it's a fair statement to say I'm a very seasoned people leader. I didn't say I was an effective people leader. I said I'm a seasoned people leader. I've learned a lot in the the leadership industry. So I'm fairly comfortable with conflict. I'm comfortable with high courage conversations. I'm comfortable moving outside of my comfort zone. I'm comfortable receiving feedback. I'm very comfortable giving feedback. And I recognize that Lots of time people don't declare their real intent when they're telling you something. I'm not a suspicious person at all, but I'm adept enough to know that not everybody's intent is matched to their technique. So as people were giving me feedback, I had to be very deliberate on, is what they're saying about me 
or is it about them? Is what they're saying wanting to lift me up or bring me down? Is what they're saying about me now or about me and them in a meeting two years ago? Right? Is what they're saying about me or their ex-boss who looks like me? You get it, right? So I had to be very judicious, like I said earlier, around listening to people's feedback, and then I would look at which people's motives did I trust the most? And how seasoned were they and how wise were they? And if I felt like they were a champion of both me and the brand of the company, I went to those people. And there were about four of them out of dozens that I really took their advice on everything from what I was wearing to my rate, my pitch, my tone, my arc, my volume, both my volume and, and sound, my volume and quantity of speaking, the types of guests that would work well with me, the rapport that I would build before going on air. As you know, you know the, the eight to 10 minutes you spend with a guest prior to going live makes or breaks your interview. Totally. Because you know their energy level, you know if they're suspicious, you know if you can joke with them, you know how vulnerable they do or don't want to be, you know whether or not they want to get personal or not, you know whether they understand what your audience wants to hear. So I've gotten better at sussing out quality guests. I've gotten better at understanding people's motives. And what's interesting to see Harry now is... People who are naysayers and critiques of the podcast now, I watch them post it in their social media. I watch them call me or email me and suggest guests. What I've learned in life is jealousy drives a lot of behavior. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. I've had a lot of success in my life. I've had some failure. And typically my success has come because A, someone believed in me and lifted me up provided me an opportunity, and B, I didn't listen to the naysayers and to the haters, which I've got plenty. i got plenty. Go to glassdoor.com. I'm sure you're going to find some <laughs> juicy stuff on me, but I've got a lot of supporters, and I listen more to my supporters than I do my naysayers. Makes not, a lot of sense. not for validation, but because the supporters are those that can call me aside and say, Scott, can I tell you, it took nine minutes to even get into the meat on that interview. It took you nine minutes. Yeah. Scott, you got to get to the point sooner, right? That's someone that I trust because they, they have my best interest in mind. They have So I have four or five people that after every interview, I call them up and they let it rip. They, just let, they know I'm going to call them about two minutes later in my car headed from the studio home and they let it rip, good and bad, and it's so valuable. I think it's so important and I think a lot of not just podcast hosts but people who are in leadership positions sometimes are afraid to surround themselves with people who challenge them, who have a differing opinion of them. Sometimes it's important to actually disagree with people without being disagreeable. And I think knowing our own limitations, places where we can improve as a person is always something to be consciously aware of. And I'm wondering what you do on a consistent basis to keep yourself in check. You just described the essence of great leadership, and that is really self-awareness, right? I mean, we all think we are more self-aware than we are. None of us are very self-aware, especially leaders that are higher up in organizations because the, the more prestige, the more power you have, the less likely it is people are going to tell you the truth about everything, about, you know, what you're like to work with, what you're like to be in a meeting with, what you're like to listen to in a podcast. So I think it's, it, it's a fundamental leadership competency to be open to feedback, to solicit it proactively, to make it safe for people around you, typically more junior, typically maybe not as professionally successful as you or such, but to surround yourself with people that are bold and that have a culture where they feel safe to say, Scott, took you nine minutes to get to a point. Scott, you talked way too long. Scott, you talked too much. Scott, you were overly flattering. I hear that a lot, that I'm way too deferential and flattering to my guest. And yeah. and that's that. I don't see that, but they tell me that. So I'm, I'm mindful of that. So I think a leadership talent that transitions over into podcast hosts is recognizing that you're not nearly as self-aware as you think you are. And if you want to improve, you'll build together a board of advisors that you can call up 
and get feedback on good things and bad things. Now, I'll share something, Harry. When I solicit feedback, I'm usually willing to suffer through the bad stuff to get to the good stuff. And so I've caught myself on that, right? When I call you up, I not I don't need to just be able to placate you through the criticism to get to the self-adoration of how amazing you were, Scott. Yeah, yeah. So I have to be thoughtful not to dispute, refute, deny, deflect. And then they say and really make sure that they see me implementing that behavior in next week's podcast. Otherwise, why take why take my phone call each week? Exactly. Right? I just yeah. Scott's just calling to get some love from you, right? So <laughs> That's why I don't ask 18 people. There's four that I call, and I'm mindful to make sure that I that they catch me behaving in a new way on the next podcast so that they continue to give me feedback. As you're working through some of these conversations with people who have had a lot of su- success in their careers or in their lives, the way I describe it sometimes is a bit of verbal jujitsu when you're in the middle of a conversation, and sometimes people reveal something that either they meant to or didn't mean to. Have you had instances where conversations have gone down a path and you've had to make a, a quick in-flight decision about how deep you want to go down that personal rabbit hole or, or if they're revealing something that might be vulnerable for them and your thought process on working through those in the middle of a conversation? Multiple times each podcast. This is my job. I, in fact, I'm, I, of all the things I do poorly, one of the things that I'm complimented on the most is that I do a good job of setting the other person up for success. I see that as my job. Honestly, my model is Larry King. I'm writing a new book called Master Mentors for HarperCollins, and it basically is a collection of the of the top 40 podcasts that I've interviewed, and I'm writing about each one of them. Larry King is going to endorse the book. What I loved about Larry King was Larry King was not a gotcha interviewer. He was It was, it was puffball, softball. But it's why everybody came on, because they knew that Larry King was going to let you say whatever you wanted to, and then he would let the listener decide whether it was true or not, or valuable or not. And so I try to model myself, I'm really not a hero, which is Larry King, which is, my job is to get you to open up a little bit, but never to embarrass you, or to compromise you, or to do anything that wouldn't allow your value to come through. So there are times when I've had guests that perhaps forgot a word or forgot where they were going or forgot a question or forgot what part of the book it was or perhaps they didn't write their book. Maybe they had a (laughs) ghostwriter, right? And they couldn't remember the story. So I would then come in, not disingenuously, but say, well, you know, it's that story about how the grapefruit stand, you know, wasn't the best idea, so you modified it then to an orange juice stand, and I could tell, you know what, they didn't write this book. So my job is to fill the story in enough for them so that they can, you know, maybe save some face, but 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 land the point of the story. So it happens all the time. And I don't think it's disingenuous. I think it's what a good host does, which is reveal, you know, you set a platform for the other person to reveal, uncover, disclose, share what they're willing to, no less and maybe not a whole lot more. But that's why that pre-call is so important because, you know, you can set some boundaries. I've never had anybody tell me what not to ask. I have had a few people say, would you mind if we didn't go there because of this and that? I'm, of course, right? I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm a podcast host, right? Yeah. So I'm very comfortable with that. My job is to set them up for success. I think my job is to make them look good. Because a lot of these people have, you know, spent their entire lives either helping other people or building a platform for other people to benefit from. And if I can give something back to them too, then I think that's um, deserved. How did you end up at Franklin Covey? I was fired from the Disney company. So I was born and raised in Orlando, Florida. I worked okay. for the Disney Development Company, which is the real estate arm of the Walt Disney Company for four years, almost four years, had a wonderful ride. They invited me to leave, which is the way Disney, you know, gets rid of you. I was young in my early 20s, you know. I was yeah. technically, I was competent, but a bit of a jerk and gossiper and young and immature. And so they kicked me out. And believe it or not, some of the people from the Covey Company met me at the Disney Company, took a liking to me saw some things in me that perhaps, you know, the Disney firm didn't. And I moved from Orlando, Florida out to Provo, Utah, 
which if you know Utah, you know, this was a single <laughs> Catholic boy from Orlando moving out to Provo, Utah. It's kind of like a Jew moving to Vatican City, right? I mean, great for a sabbatical, but maybe not for 25 years. But it's been a great run. I've had a phenomenal ride. Thank you for asking. What is your time in Franklin Covey taught you because you typically don't see that as much now people spending that portion of their career at one company it's something that harkens back to the days of GM and I'm wondering what you've learned being in the same company for that period of time about yourself and also about the how to function in an organization that size it's a superb insight and equally a superb question. My father, who's still alive, 84, worked for 32 years for the Lockheed Martin Company, the missile defense contractor. And so I think I was raised in a middle-class family to believe that that's kind of what you did, right? And that you. And so I don't know that that had a conscious impact on me. It had a subconscious impact. I never expected to stay 25 years. I didn't really know. I thought I might, I don't know, I thought I might stay five, 10 years. I didn't really know. I think one of the reasons that I have stayed is because the company was the perfect size for me. It was large enough to where I could have nine separate careers in 25 years, right? I was a salesperson in Utah, and then I went to the London for a year. And I came back to Utah as a sales manager. I went to Chicago for six years as a sales managing director. I came back to Utah and was a managing director of a new division, and then chief marketing officer, and then I was, you know, EVP of thought leadership, and I'm now a podcast host, a radio host, an author, a speaker. So I've been fortunate enough to build nine separate careers inside of one company. We're actually a small company, right? I mean, yeah, we're, yeah. A, we're you know about $300 million of revenue, about 2,000 associates worldwide. I know most of them. So for me, I was blessed to work in a culture that was the right size for me. Kind of a bit of a, I could be a big fish in a small yeah. sea, right? But not so small that I had to leave to go meet my needs. Another reason why I, I, I've stayed, because I love the brand. I mean, the, you know, the, the brand is, I mean, you know, where do you leave and go to after Franklin Covey? I mean, I, the White House? I mean, I, I'm, I'm honestly, this is an amazing brand. It's an iconic brand. And it's a collection of really fine people. So culture has kept me here. Can you talk a bit about the relationship that you have with Stephen Covey or in the, in the interactions you've had with him? Yeah, so, you know, Stephen Covey passed about eight years ago as the result of a head injury from a bicycle accident. Prior to that, I tutored under him for close to 15 years. He was the real deal, brother. This was a man who said and did the same thing, yeah. private and public. So often we see these um, iconic leaders that then crumble, right? Because they were stealing or they had drugs or had a porn problem or they had a difficulty keeping their marriage vows yeah. or they were cooking the books. Not Dr. Covey, man. This guy was congruent. He was humble. He was funny. He was quirky. He was grateful. He was generous. He was genius. Probably not a great business operator. He turned it over to people who were smarter than he was. He was a man of impeccable character and integrity. And I think he's changed the way people interpersonally work together for the future of mankind. His book has sold 40 million copies. This is the 30th anniversary. We just re-released The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Dr. Covey did not invent these seven habits. He curated them. He named them. He sequenced them and then wrote about them. Yeah. And that's his greatest gift, I think, to mankind. He would love this podcast, by the way. He would love it. <laughs> he would be on it like every month if he could be. Not because he was ego. He would just get that this is a great distribution method. And he'd call me up on the phone and say, hey, Scott, got any space for me this month, right? Uh, as he's like outside of the door ready to come in to want to tape one, right? Gracious guy. Yeah, it's one of those seminal books that you, early on if, if in your business life, I think everyone gets, if you're lucky enough, you get handed a copy of the book and, and it just sits with you forever. It's one of those things that you just carry with you throughout life. We just re-released it last week with Sean Covey, his son who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens. So oh, okay. Sean didn't change a single word in the entire book, but he added a kind of modern day application after each of The Seven Habits. It's definitely oh, worth perfect. picking up a new copy of it. Can you think of a relationship you've had, and it sounds like there's probably many, but with a, with a mentor that's have, had an influence on your life? 
Oh, Liz Wiseman's book by far. Liz Wiseman wrote a book called Multipliers. Okay. And the whole premise of the book is that as a leader, we are all accidentally diminishing people around us. And our job is to move to become a multiplier where we are not the smartest person in the room. We are not the genius in the room, but rather we are the genius maker of others. And so I highly recommend the book Multipliers had a profound impact on understanding what is my natural, accidental, diminishing style. I'm the idea guy. I'm the idea guy, right? I'm the guy that's always cooking up new ideas. And because of my charisma and maybe even positional power, a lot of people are chasing all 412 ideas simultaneously. And so my creativity font can become really diminishing for the firm because I'm moving people in lots of different directions. The CEO will probably tell you, you know, Scott can get anyone to do anything. And that isn't always a good thing. (laughs) So I think multipliers will change the way you look at your role, not to be the genius in the room, but to be the genius maker of others. That's fascinating. We'll make sure we have a copy of that in the show notes as well. Why is leadership so important and also so overlooked? Because I, I think when people are starting companies, they just focus on building and sales and, and, and getting as many widgets and making as much money as possible. But I think for those that want to leave a lasting legacy, they have to do the work, the internal, sometimes the internal work on being a good leader. And I'm wondering why it's been such a, a topic of interest for you and passion for you for all these years. I think not everybody should be a leader of people. I think too often we treat leadership like cooking dinner. Not everybody should be an airline pilot. Not everybody should be an anesthesiologist. I think we lure organizations, lure people into leadership roles as opposed to lead them in. You know, we promote we promote the most efficient dental hygienist or the most creative digital designer or the top producing salesperson. I think a lot of people fall into leadership accidentally because you either lead or be led or it's the only option to get promoted. So a lot of people move into leadership and don't understand it's a fundamentally different competency than being the top salesperson or being the best digital designer. And so I, I know Harvard Business Review published a study a few years ago that said the average age that someone receives their first management role is age 30. But yet the average age they receive their first leadership development training, age 42. Wow. It's a 12-year gap. Yeah. So bad leaders aren't bad people. They're good people with no training. So they're just making it up. They're just, you know, kind of turning everybody into themselves, right? And realizing that your job as a leader is to get work done with and through other people. And that's a mindset shift. When you become a leader, you have to learn to get work done with and through other people. It requires you to listen more. It requires you to be more patient, more abundant. It requires you not not to have to win at the expense of your people. Not everybody has that natural disposition. I am never going to fly a commercial airline, hopefully. (laughs) I am never going to be an anesthesiologist. Take that to the bank. That's okay. Not everybody should be a leader of people. So, I mean, so to answer your question, I think leadership is an enormously important role. And it may not be for everybody, and that's okay. There's no harm, no shame in not being a leader of people. I'm not shamed that I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. I'm not shamed that I'm not a, a, a beautician. That's not my talent. I'm not going to learn that skill. Which is why I think when you promote people into leadership, the gravitas around that is so important. Flying a plane, last time I checked, was pretty important. So I think that people need to take it with the gravitas that it is and realize that they are the linchpins of culture. People don't quit bad jobs. People quit bad leaders in corrupt cultures. And leaders are the linchpin of building culture. It's an enormously important role. I think organizations should take it more responsibly. I agree. And it's something that's generally overlooked. But I think now with all the availability of shows like yours, I think people are, it's becoming more aware as a topic that people need to be thinking about. And also people that are trying to build leaders within their organizations are, are hopefully having those training sessions earlier. I think so. I think more and more I'm trying to evangelize 
you know, leadership can suck. I mean, it, this is not as gratifying as, you know, it's made out to be, right? Leadership is relentless and it sometimes is fatiguing. It can be short-term, not worth it. More, It's more of a long-term play, right? Leadership is not day trading. Leadership is buying a house <laughs> and turning it 10 years later, 20 years later, right? It's not for everybody. And I think that if you're going to be a leader, you'll be really thoughtful around what your legacy is. And you have to really check your own ego and really have all of your focus be on the development of your people, building capability, building capacity in them, and recognizing that they may surpass you Yeah. if you are successful. That's true. That's so true. A couple of questions. So good. So good. Thanks for sharing those insights. A couple of questions as we wrap up. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Oh, you know, I want to go to politics. I want to go to, I think right now I'm in the midst of really struggling with all of this physical brutality against black Americans and African Americans. Yeah. And as a Caucasian who's never been on that side of the race scenario, I've been fairly ignorant to my own biases, my own unconscious biases. You know, we're in the midst right now of, of some, you know, a couple of deaths in the last couple of weeks, including like last 24 hours an incident in the you know central park with the white woman and the dog and the african-american man well, yeah. and, and and she's been labeled a racist and fired from her job and i'm struggling with that and so i have a very dear afro latina friend in the company who's written a book about unconscious bias and so i'm starting to change my mind of what it means to be a racist and how deeply embedded in all of us we have racist views yes and how we confront those and acknowledge those and converse about those and grow in those. So I'm changing my mind about that. I'm having a self-conversation hourly about the Central Park conflict with the bird watcher and the woman the dog and yeah. who went too far and all of that. I don't see it all black and white. It's very gray for me, but a lot of my non-Caucasian friends see it very black and white. And so I'm working through that. I've changed my mind on that. Yeah. That's an important one, and just for the benefit of the listener, this is in the con- in the middle of the death of George Floyd here, in actually in, in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where where I'm recording from. So it's it is interesting. It is timely. This idea of white privilege, what it means, even that saying that phrase out loud sometimes makes certain people uncomfortable. But I think we all struggle. I'm Latino, but I have the the privilege of being, you know white when I need to be. And so I, I think about those things as well. So it's, it's really top of mind. And I think it's, a, it's an important national conversation. So I'm really grateful that you brought it up. And just even if it just gives food for thought for the listener. I was in the sofa this morning, my wife and I were both Caucasian, our, obviously our three boys are, are Caucasian. I was sitting on a sofa having coffee with my wife this morning at like six o'clock watching the news. And I said to my wife, can you imagine what it would be like right now to, to be black or African American, a parent? a mom or a dad, and have teenage boys, you'd be fearing for their life. I said to my wife, I I mean, I might like make sure that my boys were always with a Caucasian, like everywhere they went. It might save their life. And how insane is that, right? I have, I can only imagine what it would be. I I cannot imagine. I cannot comprehend what it would be like to be a non-Caucasian parent right now in America specifically black American, African-American, black, brown, and have a teenage son, namely, who was not Caucasian, you would be fearing for their life. You would, Every time they jogged, every time they drove somewhere. I think I would sign up a bunch of white friends to be with them everywhere they went to make sure they were not shot or strangled or lured or something else. I, I, my heart and vote goes yeah, out of course and I'll be voting in the ballot office in November for which candidate I think will stoke that the least and will bring unity and a conversation back that is around civility to this nation I'm a lifelong Republican and I will be voting in the ballot box in November for the candidate who I think will bring unity back to this country so important and so needed thank you for for bringing that that, that up What's the most misunderstood thing about you? You know, I am a very loud person, as you can tell. I'm a very charismatic person. I'm a very passionate person. I think that comes across a lot as a bully. 
my ability to articulate a point of view, my vocabulary, my communication style can can bully people quickly. And I have to be careful not to change who I am, yeah. but not to bully you, but also to recognize, don't let yourself be bullied. If you've got a point, if you've got a passion, then bring it to me. But I, I don't think I can change fundamentally my personality because you think I'm too loud or you can't articulate your point of view as well as I can mine. And so I have to balance making sure that I create situations where people feel comfortable standing up to me and being as strong as I am without fundamentally caving on who I am as a person as well. Is that something, is that a skill that you're teaching your kids as well? Because it seems to be something that would be valuable and it would have been valuable for a lot of kids growing up around bullies as well. Yes, most definitely. I mean, my wife is the opposite of me. She's very thoughtful. She's very deliberate, a little more shy, quiet, and does not like conflict. She needs people to like her. Uh, my wife is younger than I am by about 12 years. I, I don't need people to like me. I don't shy <laughs> from conflict. I mean, I don't seek it out, yeah. but, I don't, but I mean, to me, conflict, no conflict, it's the same. I, I don't have any problem, you know, getting into a rip-roaring debate argument and then stopping it and going having a beer. I mean, I can flip on a dime like that. My boys have more my personality than my wives. I think there is a value of balancing courage with diplomacy. And I'm trying more to teach that to my boys because I'm, as you can probably tell, I'm higher on the courage side than I am on the diplomatic side. But I'm self-aware enough to be mindful of that as I model for our boys what it means to be an extrovert yeah, and how to make sure that that doesn't come across as a bully. I'm reading a new book called Never Split the Difference. I know it. It's awesome. <laughs> it's <so> awesome. <laughs> yes. It's a great book, Harry. Really good book. Well, Scott, this is as wide-ranging as I imagined it would be, as insightful and as thought-provoking as I hoped it would be. Thank you, And Harry. so I'm incredibly grateful to you for sharing your wisdom on, on leadership and on a wide range of topics. And I'm really happy where this conversation went. I think there's a lot of nuggets in here that we're going to be takeaways for our listeners. And, and I'm grateful and congratulate you on the show. I know you're past the 100 mark. And that's a, that's a, a very big accomplishment for podcasters. And I love the what you bring to the to the world of podcast interviews because I feel it's it's a it's it's its own group of people who who do it well and and when people do it well, others who are striving to be the best in their game take notice and so I'm I'm grateful for what you're bringing to the podcast interview game uh, because it's it's going to be a model for others who are looking to get started to follow. So thanks again for your time. What's the best place for folks to connect with you? Follow the show online. Thanks, Harry. You can follow me on LinkedIn. And you also can visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership button. Subscribe to the podcast. comes out every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time via email. And you also can subscribe to it on every podcast platform, Franklin Covey's On Leadership with Scott Miller. Perfect. Thanks again for your time. I appreciate it, Scott. Thank you, Harry. Have a great summer. You too. Thanks again to Scott for coming on the show. Much appreciated for anyone that has led teams or has been on teams with so-so, poor, or even great managers, all the tips that Scott has shared and his stories, I think, are really, really relevant. And I appreciate him coming on. As always, full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 230. And that'll include recaps, quotes, and any links mentioned as well. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Check out his fantastic catalog of music at cedarsoil.com. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, Focusrite, and their awesome line of gear, specifically the Scarlet 2i2, which I can't say enough good things about. Podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite. Tune in next week for my conversation with the one and only Nick Kwa, host of Servant of Pod, but probably more well-known for starting the Hot Pod newsletter, which has been going strong since 2014. That's going to be another podcast geek out session and nick and i had a really fantastic conversation all about the podcast industry and his story creating a newsletter and his new podcast project so make sure you check that out if you made it this far no doubt you're awaiting the retention hashtag let's go with leadership scott one word and you can tag scott at scott miller j1 that's a store account and 
me at podcast underscore junkies. Thanks again for all you do to support this show. I appreciate and love you from the bottom of my heart. Have a fantastic day.